Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Listening to 9.7 FM KALX. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Terrific Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about Alzheimer's, red wine, and binge drinking. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Gordon Campbell. In addition, we'll be joined by Greg Rickman, who'll be talking about science in the movies. In addition, you can find out what is in AstroTurf. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Grok's. I'm Frank Lane. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. How's everyone doing this week? Uh, actually, not too good. Oh, what's wrong? I think I've caught a disease that's going to wipe out humanity. Uh, black oh, plague? Man, give it no, me. abstinence. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's really uh, something you can catch, more or less it's something that's usually imposed upon you. <laughs> yeah, by the Republican Party, I guess. <laughs> I didn't know they had much to do with that. Don't impose <laughs> it over here. <laughs> anyway, stay away from me if you don't want to catch any weird thing. Or stay away from the Republicans, I guess. <laughs> Alright, well, actually I have a real story about diseases, Alzheimer's. That's sort of absence from thinking. Do you yeah. think they remember? <laughs> Anyways, there's a conference just passed by, the Ninth International Conference conference of Alzheimer's diseases and they have some findings such as just that you can have better detection of Alzheimer's from people's daily activities. Okay, so basically just watching how they uh, go about their daily lives and seeing what they do. Right. You know, if people are having difficulties with very common activities, such as feeding themselves, dressing, grooming, walking, stuff like that. How about sex? (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) I I appear to have difficulty with that. (laughs) You have absolutely. I'm I'm forgetting to have it, so I guess that's (laughs) a problem. But uh, these people are classified as having mild cognitive impairment, and what the study from Emory University has suggested is that people who have MCI have a... 12 to 18 percent chance of developing Alzheimer's in, within a year. Oh, so they're basically linking just this mild cognitive impairment to a risk of Alzheimer's. Right, right. But so you're saying that people who have trouble feeding themselves don't yet have <laughs> Alzheimer's? Well, because the memory is not degenerative enough that they can still <laughs> somewhat think clearly. But I you guess. would think feeding would at least be up on the list of <laughs> basic survival needs. Yeah. I well, sometimes forget to breathe, so you know. <laughs> Anyway, so the study suggests that we can begin treatment on Alzheimer's earlier if we can watch out for these signs. All right, so uh, if people want to know which signs to look out for... Uh, They should check out a recent article in Science Daily. So have you taken any resveratrol lately? It's on my daily list of things to do. Wow, what was that for? <laughs> Apparently, it goes good uh, on spaghetti, you know. Uh, <laughs> it probably would. And it tastes like strawberries, Because huh? it's an extract from red wine. Apparently, at least three creatures live longer when they're supplemented with an extract of red wine called resveratrol. 
But this chemical is supposed to activate related enzymes in all three organisms and might duplicate the life-prolonging effects of extreme dieting. By showing for the first time that this compound works in animals, these results bring human studies a step closer. So, so far they've shown that yeast flies and nematodes will live longer with resveratrol. And apparently this compound works on the SIR2 gene, which is found in yeast as well as in animals. What does the uh, SIR2 gene do? So SIR2 belongs to a family of proteins called sir 2 So first they found that it would lengthen lifespan in yeast cells. Then they decided to test it on animals. And they found that this compound would increase the worm lifespan by 14% and would also give a similar effect in fruit flies, boosting their lifespan up to 29%. Wow. Now they're testing it in rodents, apparently, so hopefully soon we'll have some of that on the <laughs> show. <laughs> yeah, on the spaghetti. Exactly. All right, so I think I'm going to add, like, the vitamin C, the resveratrol, uh-huh. and maybe just a little Viagra for good measure, because <laughs> <laughs> what's the good. point of growing old if you can't be having fun, too? <laughs> just as long as you're not abstaining while you're taking that. That's right. <laughs> and not forgetting. Okay. All right, so uh, if people want to know more about the resveratrol, where can they take a look? Well, there's been a report in Nature this week about the fruit fly result. Uh, do you guys get drunk pretty quickly? Pretty quickly. Yeah, ah. pretty much. So uh, you guys might have one particular factor of uh, getting drunk, which is this ENT gene that's found in humans and, and mice, apparently. And a group of researchers have implicated this particular gene as being involved in a number of intoxicating effects of alcohol. So this is independent of the uh, alcohol dehydrogenase that's responsible for breaking it down? Right. This is one of the uh, genes that produces a protein which actually takes up adenosine from the nerve synapse. Mm -hmm. And adenosine actually has a sort of sedating effect when it stimulates these nerve cells. Mm -hmm. But it's found that alcohol actually blocks the activity of these ENT genes Mm -hmm. in resulting in more adenosine, and that, of course, results in greater sedating effect. Wow. So adenosine is the causative agent for drunkenness? It's one of the aspects of drunkenness, at least the sedative effect of drunkenness, right? Really? There's also release from inhibition, which involves a lot of the GABAergic circuitry as well. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because researchers have now found that, given the fact that, okay, well, you have a lot of these ENT genes, mice who apparently lack these ENT genes as they've engineered them can tolerate more alcohol without falling down, passing out. And it's implicated that because they can tolerate more alcohol, this could result in a greater risk of alcoholism in humans that don't have this particular gene. So it's okay for a mouse to walk around without ENT1? Yeah, I guess so, because I guess the uh, system normally adapts to take care of the normal levels of adenosine that would be in the system anyway. (laughs) So it explains why some people can tolerate more alcohol, they're saying, and it explains why if you can tolerate more alcohol, you're more likely to binge drink and, of course, become addicted to the alcohol. Cool. So if anyone's interested in uh, binge drinking, <laughs> well, I don't know. You go down in the bar and <laughs> give it a try. I'll challenge anybody. I'll they'll probably drink me under the table. I think they can contact the website. Yeah, to do that. Email. Yeah. <laughs> does, everyone, does, does everyone get that? There is a. This is a real challenge. This is a real challenge. You contact us at thegroxathotmail.com. If you can drink me under the table, you win. And that's about it. <laughs> And uh, if you want to know more about the ENT1 gene and uh, related issues, uh, you can find this in the uh, recent edition of Science Now. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Mr. Greg Rickman will join us to discuss the science fiction film reader. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, from pioneering works such as Metropolis to more recent fairs such as The Matrix, science fiction films continue to entertain us while giving voice to both our hopes and fears. These possibilities for a brighter tomorrow or a grim future are often predicated on scientific discoveries and the potential uses or misuses that humans can find for them. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the science fiction film genre is Mr. Greg Rickman. Mr. Rickman has edited such books as the film Comedy Reader and the Western Reader with Jim Kites, and authored two books of interviews and a biography of Philip K. Dick. He has taught at San Francisco and Sonoma State Universities and at UC Santa Cruz, and he's the editor of the new book, The Science Fiction Film Reader, which is a collection of essays about the science fiction film genre. Mr. Rickman, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Thank you. You can call me Greg. All right. Well, uh, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and you've edited a very fascinating uh, collection of essays in the science fiction film reader, but I think this is probably a genre that a lot of people might be somewhat, or could be somewhat dismissive of. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about why science fiction? Why is it important, and what's its appeal? Well, it's one of the most exciting genres because you're dealing with the future, and as somebody once said, the future is where we will all be living. (laughs) Indeed. So you have, going back to the first published works of science fiction by H.G. Wells over 110 years ago, you have novels being written about things such as time travel and genetic engineering and alien invasions, and at least two of those things may be <laughs> occupying a good chunk of our future. Again, why is, what's its appeal? Why do people find uh, science fiction so interesting and so compelling? Well, there's different levels of appeal. One of the appeal is eye candy. And if you go back to the first science fiction film, which is generally considered to be A Trip to the Moon from mm-hmm. 1902, you have the special effects appeal of George Millet's work. Yeah. You have, uh, with this wonderful shot of the uh, rocket entering the moon's eye, and then the scientists tumbling out of their spacecraft and uh, stumbling around the moon, and then the little aliens come popping out, the lunarian selenites come popping out of the craters and start dancing around the explorers from Earth, and that was spectacle. And to have down to the present-day special effects, OPI, released in our multiplexes, have spectacle as an appeal. And science fiction, with its stories of aliens and planets and constellations and diseases and all sorts of bizarre things that could happen lends itself to visual appeal. So that is one basic level of the appeal of the genre of science fiction. However, actually I think a deeper appeal is the whole idea of what's going to happen, what will happen to us, what could happen to us if this happened, if that happened. Right. Well, in the book, you certainly include essays from uh, practically the whole history of science fiction. I'm, I'm curious, how do you think uh, science fiction, in terms of its themes or even just its sort of visual appeal, has changed over the years, and maybe how's it stayed the same? Well, the visual aspect of <laughs> sure. it, there, it has always been a laboratory for cutting-edge special effects. Yeah. And you look at uh, Millet's work, and in fact, the first piece in the book is a uh, from a speech that Millet's gave uh, in 1907, where he talked about how he got his special effects, and that is an appeal down to the present day. But people are always interested in things like robots, mechanical intelligence, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. and the whole concept. And that uh, the first great science fiction film is generally considered to be Metropolis in 1927. And if you take that whole concept of the robots uh, possessing intelligence as a basic fear, and that is certainly filling up multiplexes this weekend with iRobot. So you have that as an ongoing appeal. You look back at other classics of the genre since 2001, you have uh, that being covered in those films. And then you have time travel, which as I mentioned, H.G. Wells created the concept back in 1995 with the time machine. And then you have such contemporary classes of the genre as Donnie Darko. That's a great time travel film. 
film. And in between, you have the Time Machine in 1960. You have Slaughterhouse Five in 1972. You have Back to the Future in 1985. You have Star Trek people traveling through <laughs> space and time. And uh, another recurring subgenre is exploration of outer space. And mm. so you look at uh, Fritz Lang's second science fiction film, Woman on the Moon. Just as you have in 1902, Explorers Landing on the Moon. In 1928, you have Woman Landing on the Moon. Mm-hmm. And then you have, down to the present day, you have films being made about people exploring the unknown beyond our atmosphere. Right. I mean, you certainly mentioned there's sort of this common thread that keeps going through the history of science fiction. What are really some of the many of the common themes that really occur frequently in science fiction? And how are they a reflection of society at the time, and how do they adapt to what society is feeling? Well, you have sort of an oscillation between fear of the unknown and uh-huh. welcoming uh, of uh-huh. the unknown. So certain science fiction films are very open toward the invasion of the alien, landing of the right. aliens. You look at Close Encounters of the Third Kind, for example, or E.T., you know, some of the early Spielberg films. And then on the other hand, you have Fear of the Alien, and then you can look at Alien from 1979, right. which is right in the era that Spielberg was right. doing those films. You have Ridley Scott coming out with a, a very hostile, nasty uh, alien. And if you want to tie it into... Uh, political events, everybody always looks straight at the 1950s because you have many films being made about the aliens being very evil and nasty and invading us and many people draw parallels between that and the anti-communist fears of the time. But at the same time you have a few films being made in the 1950s such as 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is a very liberal internationalist pro-United Nations and it's friendly toward the alien. The alien is actually a good and benevolent figure coming down to help us. It's almost a Christ-like figure being sacrificed and being reborn again, a trope that Spielberg reused in E.T., mm. where the alien is a Christ-like figure who right. dies and re- is reborn for our benefit. So you have that oscillation, and you can definitely tie it in right. with political attitudes at the time. And although, as it happens, the different films will appeal to the same audiences because right. they'll be blockbusters, you know, almost back-to-back. So in some ways, it's, it becomes hard to pin down why a particular film is popular at a given time. Right. One of the films that was mentioned actually in the reader, which I felt was anachronistic when it was made, was Starship Troopers, which was the the Highline film. Which yes, of course, written in the 50s, which mm-hmm. was sort of a big indictment against the Cold War era, and yet it, it sort of really didn't do that well at the box office. No, it didn't. Yeah. It has its fans. I put it in the section on films representing the traditional science fiction space adventure movie mm-hmm. because I put it in with a, an article about a Walt Disney film. I put it in an article with about Fritz Lang's film Woman on the Moon, right. and I put it in an article about uh, 1950s film Destiny. Nation Moon, which is also an adaptation of a Heinlein material, in that case by Heinlein himself, right. about the need to land on the moon. And you have in the two different Heinlein adaptations in 1950 and 1997, you have the f- different approaches, because uh, you have the alien bugs uh, enemy in right. the more recent film as a sort of a inhuman force that can be fought right. and crushed, literally crushed right. like a bug, right. uh, before they crush us. They're utterly right. alien. The author of the piece, Michael Lennick, points out that the screenwriter was looking for a safe enemy that we could all unite to hate as opposed to uh, having some ethnically tinged representative of evil as in perhaps certain other science fiction films and so he thought oh the bugs would be great as it happened it didn't strike a chord with audiences back Uh then perhaps because people were uh, confused about the satire or whatever it is about the militarist government that the people in that particular film are, are living in uh, well, as you mentioned with this film, The Bug allows the Distancing, and actually uh, Rod Serling, the creator of The Twilight Zone, actually said the reason he liked the science fiction film genre was because it allowed him sort of this distancing to explore a lot of uh, social issues that maybe he couldn't otherwise explore in, in certain films. 
Yes, Sterling was coming out of the 1950s in that conservative era, at least out in the open. You have right. the era of McCarthy and then the era of Eisenhower. So mm-hmm. you have the sort of the sunny republicanism versus the dark right. republicanism. Neither one's going to either have bland, uniform mediocrity or right. you have this kind of a very fearful approach. So many liberals like Sterling were driven to the genre as a way of working in code. And actually you look at a lot of the science fiction, both in film and in literature of the 50s, and you do have some strong anti-McCarthyite and in some cases anti-Eisenhower. Uh, anti-mediocrity fiction being written in that era and occasionally working its way into film as mm-hmm. in Invasion of the Body Snatchers the 1956 film which is often seen as an anti-communist parable but the director Don Siegel we have an interview with him in this book where he talks about how he intended it as an anti-conformist parable. Mm-hmm. That was intention in working on that particular film. Serling went on to do the script together with a formerly blacklisted screenwriter named Michael Wilson for Planet of the Apes in 1968 which is intended as a commentary on what's going on in America in the later 1960s. So what about films right now? I guess several of the films that I've seen, such as Minority Report, actually depict sort of a consumerist-driven culture of the future. Yeah, yeah Minority Report is a very interesting film. Uh, I did a piece on Minority Report in the, in the collection. It's an interesting film because it, it is at once satirizing product placement. Mm-hmm. We walk into the mall and immediately your eye scan reveals who you are right. and they start pr- uh, promoting certain products to you based on your previous purchases, which isn't that much of an extrapolation from cookies on computers right. now. And at the same time, it's a embracing of the that because all the product placement in the film you have contemporary products that uh, DreamWorks would have sold off the rights to as placement. You get exactly the same effect in looking at The Terminal, Spielberg's most recent film, where Tom Hanks is imprisoned in a consumer paradise of the airport mall and it's a a prison as in Minority Report but it also offers plenty of product placement for uh, Borders and Starbucks and whatever the other places that he's uh, visiting as he's tracked in the airport. So Spielberg is remaking the same film in his most recent film in the non-science fiction form and with the same ambiguity. I'm just curious, as we're talking about Minority Report, which is, of course, an adaptation of a uh, Philip K. Dick short story, how do you feel about a lot of the f- science fiction films that come out as adaptations? I Robot, of course, being the most recent. Unfortunately, I haven't seen that <laughs> yet, and my wife and I plan to see it soon. I am, of course, very curious about it, as it is, in its original form, a very much of a pro-robot, pro-artificial mm-hmm. intelligence film, but judging from the trailers that I've seen, it's very much fear of robots, fear of alien intelligence film, mm-hmm. so we'll just have to see how they switch the one from the other. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet, okay. so I'm actually quite curious. Well, run, I may run into you at the mall. Indeed. <laughs> uh, we check it out. So, but that, I mean, just that, that in and of itself, the ambiguity of the film's appeal, is it a pro-robot film or an anti-robot mm-hmm. film? And audiences are actually open to accepting, I think, either one. Mm-hmm. But more likely than not, we are being served fear these days, as opposed to friendliness toward the unknown, because that's our socio-political climate now. Right, right. So, science fiction is certainly, of course, uh, predicated on a little bit of science fact. I, I'm curious to How important is actual science to science fiction? In a very minimal sort of way. (laughs) I recently read a 20-year-old book by Philip Jose Farmer called The Barnstormer in Oz. Mm. And Farmer had a long career as an SF writer. And uh, what he was, of course, he was adapting the classic fantasy and doing a sequel to L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz. And he came up with scientific or quasi-scientific explanations as to why the scarecrow was animated and and could speak and have an intelligence. Mm -hmm. And how it was that the uh, Tin Woodman could be transferred from a human into basically a proto-robot, which is what Baum had created 
in 1900 in the original novel of The Wizard of Oz. And this is something that's very, very common in science fiction writers and actually serves as a distinction between science fiction and fantasy, which is otherwise very similar. Mm -hmm. In fantasy, you have magical powers, you have magic wands, you have things that, that transport you across a space and sometimes through time, and it's just written off as magic. This is what that is. But in science fiction, they will come up with an explanation, sometimes an elaborate pseudoscientific <laughs> explanation, to explain what this is. And one of the Star Trek spinoff TV series, I read an interview once with one of the actors there, perhaps it was LeVar Burton, or perhaps yeah. it was Jonathan Frakes, but one of them was saying that we have to speak all this techno babble. That's, <laughs> a, that's a phrase that the actors on the Star Trek series used. Right. The writers had to come up with some sort of explanation as to why humans could be transformed into aliens or, or well, half machines right. or whatever. So they they would often be given this just pseudoscientific gibberish to speak, and that was their biggest challenge as actors to try to make this sound plausible. And this is what you often have in science fiction, even pretty good science fiction films. Right. However, there are a few films that actually try to use serious concepts and try to play around with what it actually would be like to encounter the alien. There's actually quite a good piece by Carl Wessel uh, in our book on uh, 2001 and Solaris, in which he takes those films seriously as films about the encounter with the alien and what uh, that encounter would be like. Right. I guess even more recently we had The Day After Tomorrow, which was trying to... Well, it's, it, it, that, that's a film that uses the concept of global warming as a coat hook to yeah. hang on a bunch of uh, flat special effect. And oftentimes uh, it seems like science is just used as sort of a device to get the action rolling. That's exactly right. Uh, the attitude of science fiction films towards scientists is actually quite interesting. Mm -hmm. You have, in many cases, scientists being presented as uh, possessed visionaries, mm -hmm. as in Metropolis with the inventor Rotwang, who's coming up with the artificial intelligence that he somehow transforms the intelligence of the human into. And you have other possessed scientific visionaries in other science fiction films. We're actually going back to what the SF writer Brian Aldiss uh, refers to as the first work of science fiction, Frankenstein, in 1819, mm. the Mary, uh, Mary Shelley novel right. uh, that has been filmed many times, generally considered as horror fiction and horror films. But certainly you can look at, upon Frankenstein, which is being written right when the Industrial Revolution right. was cranking into being. Uh, you can look upon that as a work of science fiction. Right. And I think that was a brilliant insight of Aldiss's to do that. Aldiss, in fact, contributed the original story to AI, right. uh, the Spielberg right. film that is a science right. fiction work of exploration about right. artificial intelligence itself. So uh, you have that trend where oftentimes you have the scientists as possessed visionary as in Dr. Frankenstein or as in, as in Rotwang. On the other hand, you have the scientist as a dupe of the alien, as for example in the 1951 The Thing. It is the scientist who is possessed by the interest in the intellectual carrot uh, from outer space right. and uh, opens the door toward the possible takeover of the polar ice station by the intellectual carrot, the evil alien from outer space. And also in the original 1979 Alien, Again, you have the scientist, who turns out to be an android himself, who opens the door, literally, to the alien and brings him into the spaceship. So you have the dark vision of the scientist in those films. They're more interested in knowledge than they are in protecting human life. Right. Is it just easier then to have the scientist as sort of this foil, who, uh, which you can play off of, rather than uh, developing into sort of more of a three-dimensional character? Even when scientists are presented in a positive way, they are these sort of comic foils. And I'm thinking, of course, of Doc Brown in the Back to the Future series, which, uh, again, he's right. possessed, he's a visionary, right. but he's also a lovable nut. Yeah. 
occasionally, and again, I go back to The Day the Earth Stood Still, where you have a stand-in for Albert Einstein, the character who, you know, is a professor at Princeton and it looks like right. Einstein. Right. He isn't called Einstein, but he's the most famous scientist in the world. Yeah. And he is the uh, scientist through whom the friendly aliens uses as a conduit. Very rarely do we see genuine scientists presented as problem solvers who mm -hmm. are taking on serious issues and trying to resolve them as best they can. Right. So you do have the kind of, as we have this oscillation in uh, science fiction films between fear of the unknown and openness toward the unknown, right. you have in the presentation of scientists this sort of fear of the hyper-knowledgeable right. and then a sort of a, a openness uh, perhaps toward the hyper-knowledgeable, but that kind of slides off in the condescension. Well, it looks like we are running a little bit out of time, but I'm, I'm just curious. So what are some of your favorite science fiction films? Metropolis, Blade Runner, which essentially Blade Runner is a, a loose remake of Metropolis. Okay. So essentially I like the same movie twice. Okay. I like those probably the best. Okay. But there's another really great film from the early 1960s called The Damned, a.k.a. These Are the Damned, uh -huh. uh, which uh, Dan Salit uh, writes a nice little piece on. It's a British film about scientists locking up a bunch of children in the English coast to prepare them for the inevitable atomic devastation of Earth. It's just a really bleak movie and so in a certain <laughs> mood that's a good movie to see right right so uh, maybe as a final word so what would be your recommendations for films for people who may maybe not necessarily like science fiction what should they go see a, a good film it's a good character study it also uh -huh. has some fun concepts in it that you can get on DVD pretty readily is Donnie Darko and it's uh -huh. new it came out a couple of years ago with Jake Gyllenhaal who of course is one of the many bad actors in <laughs> uh, The Day After Tomorrow but he's yeah. actually quite a good actor in Donnie Darko which I understand the writer-director Richard Kelly has reworked as a director's version which is playing in some theater or will play in some oh. theaters later this year. So I'd look out for that one. Okay. I guess just as closing out, we understand that you're going to be doing uh, a book signing for uh, your book, The Science Fiction Film Reader. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yes. This Sunday, between 2 and 4, at the Other Change of Hobbit on 2020 Shattuck near University in Berkeley, I will be there. And uh, Doug Williams, who wrote a piece on the Star Wars cycle, uh, will be there. Oh, wow. And uh, Richard Von Busack, who wrote our piece on Planet of the Apes series, oh. will be there. And we'll be talking about uh, science fiction. Oh, great. Well, I, I hope uh, everyone will go down and check that out and pick up your book. Thank you. All right. Well, Mr. Rick I just want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the science fiction for media and science fiction films. Thank you very much. It's okay. fun to be here. And you were just listening to Mr. Greg Rickman discussing the science fiction film reader. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatribe 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, we're back from the break with our guest, uh, Mr. Greg Rickman, who has uh, graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. Mr. Rickman, thank you for sticking around. Call me Greg. All right. The Grokatron 5000 is our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue, and he comes up with five questions for all of our guests, and this week he has chosen the topic, Human or Robot? So the film iRobot, which has just opened out in theaters. The Grokatron 5000 would like to know, for the following five people, would they be better as humans <laughs> or robots? How can you tell? 
And of course, how can you tell it? Yes. And uh, maybe a little reason uh, why they might be better as a human or a robot. Better as human or robot. Better as human or a robot. So are you ready to play our game? I'm ready to play your game. Okay, very good. The Grokatron 5000, human or robot. Item number one, or human or robot, Martha Stewart. She is clearly a human. I saw her on Larry King last night, and when Larry asked her to comment on some of the jokes that had been made about her redecorating her cell, Uh she snapped back so hard, (laughs) she was definitely human. Okay. Human or robot, number two, William Hung. William Hung, the singing UC person who was singing on Idol, American yeah. Idol, which I understand was he was quite a sensation. Uh, he must be a robot. Okay, very good. Number three, human or robot, George Bush Jr. George Bush Jr. You mean our illustrious president? Indeed, indeed. GW? GW. GW is a uh, defective robot. <laughs> defective. His model has been recalled. <laughs> Uh, number four, human or robot, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, clearly a high model prototype for the future. Indeed. And, and finally, number five, human or robot, Donald Trump. Now that is a truly scary notion. If he is a human, we are clearly evolving at a radical pace, <laughs> and so we would really hope that he has to be a robot. But in the case he's a robot, then the robot kings of Earth are clearly evil. So <laughs> the choice is so dreadful, I will opt for that he is actually a fungi, an alien <laughs> fungi you can tell from his hair. Yeah. <laughs> That's certainly uh, that's certainly one possibility that I think we hadn't considered. Uh, well, Mr. Rickman, I th- want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks, playing our game, The Grokatron 5000, and of course discussing your book, uh, The Science Fiction Film Reader. Thank you. Well, yee-haw! All right, well, now it's time for the answer to last week's question of the week, and you know what the question was, was that AstroTurf. Gosh darn it, down here in the uh, wild, wild west, we like our turf raw. But damn in the Astrodome, they like it AstroTurf. Well, what do they make that stuff out of? Well, that AstroTurf's composite fibers from all kinds of weird carbonite shites, and it's all really interesting because organic chemistry makes it possible. Okay, and now here's the Tokyo Kid with this week's question of the week. What famous scientist's name, when translated to English, means one stone? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grogs at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you just might be a genius. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grogs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Gordon Campbell. And I'm Franklin. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. <laughs>